I mentioned yesterday that I was going to be meeting with Mark uh, Martin. For those of you who don't know who he is, he was at one time the assistant pastor of the Glendale Church, where Gary pastors, and um, left in 1982, and um, left Adventism, became the pastor of Calvary Community Church there in Phoenix, which has now grown to almost 12,000 members. So he certainly has the gift of leadership and growing a church, and I spent three hours with him this afternoon. And I didn't quite know what to expect, because I looked at his website to get some information about him. I looked at xadventist.com, which also his website, and, and he turned out to be the most, one of the most gracious people that I have dialogued with in a long time. We just had a great time together. Uh, he was just as interested in me as I was in him, asked about my church and what was going on at New Hope. He keeps very current on Adventism. He gets the Adventist Review. He gets ministry. He gets the North Pacific Gleaner. He gets a whole bunch and reads them, which is interesting because most people, when they leave Adventism, don't want to have anything more to, to do. And then he showed me all around his complex. He has a huge complex there for all those people coming. And then we pray together before before I, I left. And Gary, he holds you in high esteem uh, as, as well. So uh, he told me he wants to continue dialoguing with me, and uh, we're going to email and continue talking. So who knows what's going to come out as the result of all of that. Um, some people have said they wish that I preached longer. My, my, my philosophy is it's better to stop when everyone's wanting you to continue rather than to keep going. And I wish he'd just quit, you know, and wind this thing up. Now, I haven't talked to Gary about this, but I'm going to do an innovative thing that I haven't done before, and that's tomorrow night after the meeting. If any of you want to stay by and do some dialogue for half an hour or an hour or whatever, because I discovered that what's clear in my mind isn't always what's clear in your mind. Communication is an art. So if any of you would like to dialogue on some of the things we've been talking about and clarify, we'll have a time for question and answers after the meeting uh, tomorrow night. Gary, is there anything else being planned here? There's no, no price. Okay, all right. That we can do, do something like, like that. When I was at last year at college in California, my last two years, I worked for an ambulance company in Riverside. And one day I was to pick up a patient at a hospital in Riverside and take them to a hospital in Los Angeles. Uh, this patient was on oxygen, had to have oxygen constantly, so we loaded him in the back of the ambulance. I had my attendant there. And the wife of the patient, he was a man, sat up with me up front in the ambulance. I had consulted my map very carefully because I'd never been to this particular hospital before, plotted out my route to figure just the best way to go. And on the way, um, there was some roadworks and some detours, which, of course, the map uh, didn't indicate. And somehow, I lost my way. And I began to get a little anxious with this patient in the back, especially when my attendant let me know that the oxygen was starting to get low in the tank in the ambulance. And I had uh, visions of him dying on me and I getting prosecuted and all these kinds, kinds of things. Well, I finally found my way, but I was really behind schedule, and so I turned on my red lights and siren, which is illegal outside of your district. You can only go code three within the district uh, that your ambulance operates, but I wasn't concerned about niceties at that time. I was most concerned of getting my patient alive to the hospital. So we finally arrived at the hospital, and by this time we'd used up all the oxygen 
in the main tank, but we always carry a little tank when you pick someone up from their home and you put the oxygen mask, the little bottle sits in the gurney with them. So he was on that oxygen tank and there was about 15 minutes left and we finally got into the hospital. Did I breathe a sigh of relief when I finally unloaded loaded him? I had a map and yet my map didn't help me in the end because of changes that were taking place in the, in the route. And whenever you go on a journey, you, you take a map. And when you come to camp here, you, you get a map. For example, here's a map of the campgrounds. It's a very interesting map because none of the roads are marked. I mean, there's no names on the roads. So it's not quite a complete map. You have to kind of figure out, as I've done when I was visiting some people, well, let's see, this is approximately here. And I look at the name there, and how does it fit, fit with here? But at least it does help you, you get, a, get around. And of course, there's all kinds of, uh, of, of maps. Um, here's a map from a satellite. And if I can do this, if you look right, let's see. I was here. There's our, our church right there. This is Hallshop Road. This is Fulton over here. And this is our 17 acres that we bought a year ago. And this is our building and parking right there. So maps are very interesting things. If you want to get around Phoenix, you have a map on, on Phoenix. If you're going to go on vacation, you get a map. If you hike the Appalachian Trail, you're going to get a map. One of my members, a, a young fellow in his 20s, is at mile 500 on the Appalachian Trail. He's taken off work and he started um, a little while back down in Georgia and he's hiking the full 2100 miles of the Appalachian Trail. So we hope that he will make it. And my wife thinks me crazy, but one of my goals when I retire is to hike the trail myself. I've hiked portions of it, but not the whole thing. She's told me very clearly that she's not going to come, but she will visit me along the way and, uh, and see how I'm doing and bring me, uh, bring me, uh, bring me some, uh, some, some goodies. All of us in this room are on a journey, and we all need maps to guide us on that journey. And the map that guides us is the map of experience. And some of us learn from our experience, some of us don't learn from our experience, and so we repeat the mistakes, or sometimes it takes several learning experiences. And so the, the next tool, last night we talked about um, delay of gratification in learning to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. Tonight we're going to talk about dedication to truth, to be truly honest with ourselves, the map of truth. Now that seems like a very simple tool, but that's not the case. Because our view of reality is never totally objective. It comes from our parents, comes from our school, comes from church. It comes from all the different experiences. And I have learned and believe that one of the reasons that there are so many different interpretations of this book is that we come to it from our background and our experience. And depending on that experience, we see different ways of looking at it. For example, if a girl has grown up in a home that's dysfunctional, where she's been molested by her father, sexually molested, she becomes a teenager and she hears about God, she's never known about God, and hears God called Father, what kind of image immediately springs to her mind? Her own father. Does she have a pleasant picture of God? Not at all, because her experience tells her otherwise. And so 
we can't get away from our experience. That's who we are. So tonight we're going to talk about how do we revise our maps? How do we revise that experience in the light of, um, of reality? All kinds of things can mess up that reality. Many of us are like this. Whoops, I need to move this on here. Like the picture that my artist uh, drew for me here. We just want to shove our heads into the sand and forget it, you know? That's the simplest way. If we can just cloud it all out, and sometimes we do it with drugs, and sometimes we do it, you know, with alcohol and, and so on. Uh, Matthew Barnett is the pastor of the Dream Center in Los Angeles. Great story. Just a young guy still. He's only 32 years of age. And he told one time when he was preaching, and he saw up in the balcony someone dressed like Jesus Christ, but just like Jesus Christ. So he finished his sermon, and they had some other things going on. So he got off the platform, went up to the balcony, and, and talked to this fellow and said, um, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus Christ, very sincerely. Oh, he said, uh, did you happen to see The Passion, the movie, The Passion of the Christ? He said, yes. He said, I, I, I started watching it, but I had to walk out. It brought, brought back too many painful memories um, of the torture and so on that was going on. Well, that was his reality. It wasn't a true reality, but as far as he was concerned, that was who, who he was. Judah, son of Jacob, grieved over the death of his wife. And he had promised his daughter-in-law, Tamar, that she would have his third son. She had married his eldest son. He had died. She had married his next son. And he had died because of various things, if you remember the story. And the third son was a lot younger and he, when he grew up, he never gave her to Tamar to be married. So Tamar decided that she was going to take things into her own hands. So she disguises herself, uh, puts on a veil, and sits by the roadside. And here is what happens next. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now. Let me sleep with you. Judah's wife had died. Maybe he was feeling sexually deprived or whatever the issues were. But his map, his version of reality said that she was a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. She was actually his daughter-in-law that had disguised herself. And so he propositioned her. But from Tamar's truth, she was simply his daughter-in-law seeking him to fulfill his responsibilities. And you know what happened? Just like David and Bathsheba got her pregnant, when he discovered she was pregnant, he said, that's terrible, it's against the law, she needs to be stoned. And when she was that's gone? Oh. All right. Let's see. Hopefully that will keep, um, keep, uh, keep working on. The, the, the children of Israel escape from Egypt. They arrive at the Red Sea. And according to their map, it's impossible to cross. They start wailing and crying. Why did you bring us, Moses, out into the wilderness to, to kill us? The Egyptians are going to come and, and take us captive and, dis, and destroy us. Moses' map said, don't worry, God's going to deliver us. And he stretches out his staff, and the sea divides, and they go through two totally different maps. 
two different looks at reality. They get up to the promised land, to Canaan. They send in 12 spies to search out the land. Ten come back, and this is their map. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Their map, their reality, their truth, their experience, and we can't go in, it's impossible, we might as well forget it. But there were two other spies, and Caleb spoke up, and he had a different map. He said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Isn't that amazing? How 12 people can look at the same situation and come up with totally different perspectives. Have you ever experienced that in your lives with your spouse or your children or at work and so on? You think something is so clear and they see it totally. How can you see it that way? And they wonder how you can see it that way. And here the spies just felt we can't go in. And of course their view prevailed. And the children of Israel were left to just wander around for 40 years in the desert till they all died over 20 years of age before they went in. What a sad, sad result of that map that they had drawn of where they were going and where God wanted them, them to go. When David advances to engage Goliath, Goliath has his map. Here's what Goliath says. Goliath the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over. Now, Goliath's nine feet tall. David's not even six foot tall. So here you've got this great giant. He looks David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So here's Goliath's map. Here's a stripling. Here's an amateur, not even worth fighting with. But he was coming out to challenge him, and he was going to dispatch him in just a few seconds. No problem at all. That's his reality, his map. What's David's map? David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. And today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And whose map was most accurate? <laughs> David's map was most accurate. Goliath did indeed lose his, his head. Now, there's a problem with maps. Maps go out of date. If you were to look at a map of New York from 1760 or 1860, it wouldn't be of much help to you today, would it? And maps have to be constantly revised as roads change, as cities, as cities grow. Now, we understand that physical maps need to change. But as human beings, we find it extraordinarily difficult to change our own maps. 
We know what we believe. We know with certainty our reality. And when new information comes our way, there's several ways that we want to deal with it. Number one, we just ignore it. Just pretend it isn't there. Number two, we reinterpret it so it fits the map that we already have. Or three, we minimize it. It's really not that important. We don't have to be concerned about it. Or four, we explain it away. We find some way to rationalize it. Or sometimes we just deny it altogether. Uh, just, you know, it, it's not really there uh, when it is. This is well known in alcoholic families, deny that there's any problem going on. And Jesus, in explaining to his disciples that he's going to die, he says, I'm going to die three days, I'll be raised again. That didn't go with Peter's map. That wasn't what Peter believed. And Peter said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he denied the map that Jesus was drawing. You know, it's amazing. He had already professed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had already professed that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the rabbi. He was the master. He was the tutor. He was the one they were following. But he was so sure he was right that when Jesus said something that didn't agree with his map, he was willing to oppose the teacher. He was willing to oppose Jesus and say, Jesus, you're wrong and I'm right. One thing you can say about Peter, he didn't lack for self-confidence. He was a very audacious character. He knew that he was, uh, he was right. Map revising is terribly important if we're going to keep good relationships in our family, in the community, and in the, in the church. There's a wonderful Indian tale that illustrates this. It's called the, the, the parable of Hindustan. And you've, I'm sure you've heard it before. It was six men of Hindustan to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind. That each by observation might satisfy his mind, the first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, I clearly see the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling around the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hand, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, said he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. Speaking from their experience, this is what the elephant was. And so often that happens to us in, in life. As I said, Revising maps is very difficult. The Jews believed that the Messiah was going to conquer the Romans, was going to usher back in the kingdom of, uh, of, of David. Jesus kept trying to, to tell them 
that this was not the case over and over again. He said his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He told Pilate it was a spiritual kingdom. His kingdom was not of this world. Jesus was the master, master teacher. You would have thought that by the time he rose from the dead, he would have got his message across. But you remember in Acts, he's standing on the mount, just ready to go back to heaven. He's saying his last words, and what did the disciples ask? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? If I'd been Jesus, I'd have been ready to tear out my hair, scrap this group of men, say, well, I'm, going to, I'm not going to go back to heaven right now. I need to go spend another three years here and find another 12 people that I, I can train. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think after all this time that they've still got that old paradigm, that old map is still in their mind of what, of what they, they believe. They just don't get it. Two years ago at our Christmas program, the uh, choir and the band were practicing ahead of time. And a family came to visit. I guess they'd never been to New Hope before, didn't know much about New Hope. And I was walking across the parking lot, and the father came storming out of the church with his wife and two children. said, Elder Newman, he said, how can you dare to have that kind of music going in the church? Don't you know that that music is from Satan and you're paid by the Lord's tithe? How can you do that? You know, I'm just standing there. Well, what do you say? You know, the wife is standing there. She's looking embarrassed and the kids are looking embarrassed and the father is, is carrying on this tirade. And I just kind of smiled and said, well, I'm sorry you don't appreciate what we're doing here. And they stormed off and got in their car and, and drove away. His map said there's only one kind of music. There's only one kind of way to worship God. And when he came and experienced something different, it caused great agitation in his, um, in his life. I know, because I've had to change my map over the years. Uh, when I was a college student, I was very, very conservative in my, in my music. When I was canvassing one summer in the Mojave Desert, I stayed with a doctor and his family. And I told the daughter who liked rock music that anyone who liked rock music was not going to go to heaven. And it was in the days when the Beatles were in their heyday and she just loved the Beatles. And I said, no, the Beatles are terrible and you shouldn't listen to that music. And I even went so far as to say drums are the devil. I said, I grew up in Africa listening to the beat of the devil drums in the distance. So whenever I hear the drums here, I think of the devil. And you should never have drums in church or, or anything like that. Well, I've revised that map considerably. My church has drums and a full band, and uh, we just praise, praise the Lord. I once believed that wearing a colored fingernail and even fingernail polish and even clear nail polish was a sin, and uh, ladies should not wear that. I've since revised that map. I believe at one time that the only grounds for adultery, for divorce, were physical adultery. I've now revised that map, and I'm more liberal in how I look at that situation. At one time, I believed you had to be sinless to go through the close of probation, and everyone had to reach the state of sinless of Adam before the close of probation. I have since revised uh, that map. Um, the only money I would spend on Sabbath was in the offering plate. Uh, would never take a bus on Sabbath to go to church, would walk like the good Jews, the Orthodox Jews who have to live within walking the distance of the synagogue because they can't even drive, drive their car, and uh, would not spend any, any money on Sabbath uh, whatsoever. I was intrigued uh, when I was up at Andrews in 2001 uh, at a sign 
I copied this March 6, 2001, that was posted several places in the Andrews University cafeteria, and the sign said this, and I quote, to better observe the Sabbath, Andrews University services will discontinue the use of cash in the Terrace Cafe during the Sabbath hours. So evidently, they had been allowing cash on Sabbath to buy meals with. They said this will begin January 6, 2001. Customers who have paid cash in the past are encouraged to purchase prepaid cafe cards available from the food service offices during business hours. However, major credit cards will still be accepted. <laughs> I copied that down. Oh, well, that's very, I guess, on the premise that you don't pay your credit card on Sabbath, you see, that, that, comes, that comes later. But these, these are the maps uh, that, uh, that, that we have. At one time, I taught that the, uh, that the Adventist church taught absolute truth, that all our practices were from the Bible, that we didn't follow tradition, that everything was totally biblical. I've since revised that map. I've realized we have our traditions just like other churches, and I'll give you one good example. We have a huge debate still going on in our church whether women should be ordained. The bigger issue is whether men should be ordained. But we never, we never, we never get into that because ordination of men is not found in, in the New Testament. Uh, the King James Bible talks about ordination, but when it talks about ordaining, it's actually translating five different Greek words in the King James. If you read the NIV or modern translations, you won't see the word ordain at all. It's appoint, it's select, it's choose. And I can prove that we're not biblical in our ordination system because we have three levels of ordination. Do you know what our three levels are? What's the first level? Deacon. Deacon. What's the next level? Elder. And what's the next one? And each one is superior to the other. If you've been ordained as a deacon and you become an elder, what do you have to do? Be ordained again. And if you become a pastor, ordained again. Where do we get that from? Not from the Bible. We got it from the Catholic Church. They have three levels, the deacon, the priest, and the bishop. And uh, no one seems to worry about it. No one seems to, to, to bother about it. That's the way we've been doing it all of these years. But you won't find it in the New Testament. There's no three levels there. I'm not saying this to discourage you. I'm just pointing out the Adventist church is imperfect because it's made up of imperfect people just like other churches. And we have to be careful how we talk to people and be open and honest that our maps need to be re revised, not just as individuals, but also... As, um, as a church. I published an article by George Knight in Ministry Magazine one time in which he started off by saying if the um, pioneers had to subscribe to the 27 fundamentals of the Adventist church as written today, not one of them could be a Seventh-day Adventist. Not one. That's how much we have changed. For example, our fundamentals are very clear that Christ is eternal and equal with God. Our pioneers didn't believe that. They believed that Christ was a superior being, but he had not lived with all eternity with, with God. And I could give you other illustrations. So even as a church, we have grown and matured in our understanding of, of truth. My, my associate editor who was editing the article wanted to take out that opening statement. He thought it was too provocative. I said, no, absolutely not. I said, that's going to catch people's attention when they, when they see that, that the pioneers would not be able to join our church today if they had described to the 27. Of course, there's 28 now. The last general conference, we added another one. I wish they'd taken one away when they added that one, so we wouldn't keep adding more doctrines. But anyway, that's the way, uh, that's the way we are. Part of the problem in, 
in developing this map of truth, of dedication to truth, is personality comes into play. Some of us have very definite personalities. Some of us have very black and white personalities. Some of us see things right or wrong. Other, and I used to be that way. I, I was a very definite, it was either this way or that way. And over the years, I have learned that there's a lot of ambiguity in life, even in scripture. There's a lot of gray. But some of us don't understand that, and so we come into conflict with each other sometimes, especially within the church, when we get very definite. And uh, Pastor um, Gary has talked about that in his morning sessions with his great illustration of, of the clothesline hanging on two hooks, pulling uh, against each other. And if you release one of the hooks, the clothes fall in the, in the, in the floor. And a lot of us don't like those kind of tensions, and so we want to come down and have an answer. And I've spent my life looking for answers. I can probably give you an answer just about anything you ask me about the Bible. Because I've been very, I have a left brain, analytical mind, and I just want to know, you know what is truth, what the answers are. But I've discovered that there's still things I don't know. And I've come to the place now where I'm ready to admit that I don't know, where I'd often fudge, or I'd give you an answer just to give you an answer, uh, kind of thing. And I've learned now to be able to say, I just don't know. I don't understand this. God is so great. He's so, you know, being out here is so wonderful. In nighttime, seeing the stars, and I look up there and I say, you know, God is beyond those stars. God is beyond the universe. He made all of this. And I remember in college reading an editorial in the, uh, in the um, Los Angeles Times that said at that time, scientists estimated there were 20 quintillion stars in the universe. And I said, two with 20 zeros after it. And to give you an idea of how big that number was, they said, if you were to write the name, if you were to give a name to each of these 20 quintillion stars and just write it down, the amount of paper it would take would be all the paper that existed in the world at that time plus all the paper that had ever been manufactured from the beginning of time and you still wouldn't have enough paper in 12-point type to write down just the names of 20 quintillion stars. I read that. I said, God is beyond that. And you and I sometimes want to challenge God. We want to tell God what's up. We want to tell God he messed up. We want to tell God he should have done it better some way. And I look at that and I say, God is so patient with me. He's so patient with us. He's so beyond comprehension. We can't even begin to imagine what he's like. Only when Jesus broke into human history and became incarnate, can we begin to understand who he is and, uh, and, and, and what, he's, um, what he's about? One day, the father of a very wealthy family took his son on a trip to the country with the purpose of showing him how poor people lived and how poor some people really were so he'd know how well off he was. They spent a couple of days and nights on the farm of what would be considered a very poor family. And on the way home, the father asked his son, how was the trip? It was great, Dad. Did you see how poor people live, the father said? Oh, yeah, said the son. So tell me, what did you learn from the trip, said the father. The son answered, I saw that we have one dog, and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden, and they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden, and they have the stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard, and they have the whole horizon. 
We have a small piece of land to live on, and they have fields that go beyond sight. We have servants who serve us, but they serve others. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, but they have friends to protect them. And the father was kind of speechless at his son's reaction. And then his son added, he says, thanks, Dad, for showing us how poor we are. Thanks, Dad, for showing us how poor we are. Different realities, different perspectives, if we open out our eyes and, uh, and minds. So how do we revise our maps? Well, Paul gives us an indication. He says, surely, as you wrote to the book of Ephesians, you've heard of him and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. The lens that all of us must look through at all times is through the lens of Jesus. This is why I believe that only Christians have an ultimate grasp on what life is all about. Only Christians who truly understand what Christianity is about can have the greatest joy and the greatest peace in this world because they're looking at the lens through, through Jesus. How do we treat others? How ambiguous do we need to be? God's not going to take a people to heaven based on how much truth they know. He's going to take a people to heaven based on who they know. Do we know Jesus? Because we can know all the 27 fundamentals. We can sketch out the end time events until Jesus comes in detail and still miss out on heaven if we haven't built that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and trust, uh, trust in him. Doctrines are good and they're important, but they're not sufficient unless we have that heart uh, relationship. Jesus, in, in talking uh, to the people in the Sermon on the Mount, that's such a great sermon. Because really the thesis of that whole sermon is how to relate to people and how to relate to God. It's all about relationships. And uh, I shared part of it um, three or four uh, days ago. And I want to go back and look at a section in Matthew 5 uh, with Peterson's translation, the Message Bible. I think Peterson has got it so well. Um, before we get there, good, I put that up there. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's emphasizing that we can only go through him. And you know those bracelets, uh, W.J., what would W.W.J.D., what would Jesus do? They're kind of trite, and they're kind of simple, but there's still a great truth in there. That whenever we're confused or whenever we're not sure, we should say, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus treat this person? How would Jesus um, act? But here's Jesus saying, he's saying, here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. I love that expression, how he puts that there. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you're working out of yourselves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. 
He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless. The good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you accept, accept, expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. Peterson just has such a great way with words to get that. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you simply say hello to those who agree with you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. He's saying over and over again that uh, we expect everything to go fine and we'll respond fine. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now, live like it. Sorry, I got how in there. Live out your God-created identity. And then look at this last one. Matthew 5, 48, which is the last verse in the King James and the NIV says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And given us all kinds of fits about perfection. Notice how Peterson translates that verse. He says, live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Doesn't that give a lot of sense? Doesn't that give a lot of meaning? Jesus is saying, I want you to live towards each other the way that God acts towards you and the way that you want God act, acts, to act towards you. And that's summing up the whole a point of, of, of what Jesus is saying. And so I tell my church, and I'll tell you, that Christians are actually abnormal people. Christians are abnormal people. And if you're going to follow Jesus, everyone in this room must live an abnormal life. Because what's a normal life? Well, Peterson just taught a normal life is tit for tat. Normal life is sue if you don't get your own way. Normal life is to complain. A normal wife, normal life is, <laughs> what did I say? No. Um, wife, no, 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 normal life is to resign if you don't like what's going on. A normal life is to you know, get divorced if, if you can't make it as, as a couple. A, a normal life is to move house if you don't like your next door neighbor, and so on. The, the abnormal life is not to react the way that the world reacts. It's to be the thermostat and not the thermometer. And when the world sees you as abnormal... See, normally we think of abnormal in the negative sense, but I'm casting it in a positive sense to stir up our minds and say, this is how we are to live. But if we are going to be that thermostat, every one of us has to start asking, what about the maps that I have? Do they need some revising? Do they need some changing? Do they need some questioning? And that can be very scary. It was very scary for me through my life. I'm a very different person today than I was uh, when I started life, and, and, and many, I, I mean, I, was, I knew everything. Of course, that's characteristic of many young people as, as well. In my first evangelistic meetings, I told everyone this was the truth, and this was exactly uh, how, how you live it, and now I've discovered that things are, are quite a bit different, and there's lots of things. I do a whole seminar on adornment, and uh, show that the traditional Adventist view is not using the Bible correctly at all, but we've never, lots of us have never I never looked at that, and I had an article published with the title, Adventist Double Standard. And um, with the point being that Adventists are not really against adornment, they're only against certain forms of adornment. <laughs> and uh, I proved my point by, if you take the pendant that hangs around the neck, that's wrong in the eyes of some, and pin it to the dress as a brooch, it suddenly becomes fine. And so it's still adornment there, but if it's there, it's okay, but if it's here, it's not okay. And that's a whole other subject. I, but I had to revise that map because um, 
uh, my daughters started to question me and ask, you know, well, why, why is this wrong and this isn't? And why do you wear this and not wear that? And what about the tie, Father? Where, where did that come from? Which we never question as adornment, and it's total adornment. It doesn't warm you. It doesn't... Uh, well, it does warm you, yes. It chokes your neck and, and, and so on. And uh, when I first came to America, and it was 100 degrees, I wore my tie every day to class at last year and my wool English jacket because I felt naked if I took my tie off. Now, the only time I wear a tie is when I go to church. Uh, on Sabbath, I still use a tie when I preach. My associate doesn't wear a tie, and that lets people know you can come either way. You can come with a tie and come without a tie. That's fine. So we as pastors dress in different ways to let people know what's, uh, what's okay. But my life has been an interesting journey, and it's still not over. And I'm saying, Lord, what new things are you going to show me? What other things may I need to revise along the way? But the most important thing of all is to keep going back to, to Jesus. Jesus is standing there in the hall of Pilate. And they're kind of dialoguing backwards and forwards. And Pilate says, you're a king then. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to what? The truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And what happened? What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Yet he handed him over to be crucified. What Pilate didn't realize was he was looking truth in the face. He was looking at the author of truth and didn't recognize it. On the judgment day, that picture is going to flash back into his mind and how he's going to wish that he had listened and followed what his conscience was telling him, what his wife was telling him. Remember, she sent him a message and said, I've suffered many things in a dream today, have nothing to do with this man. But he didn't listen. He had his map, and he was unwilling to revise it. Jesus died for us, and he wants us to be willing to revise our maps, but only as it's the truth in Jesus. And if we keep going to Jesus and looking through and saying, what would Jesus do? How would he understand this? That will help us to know when what we're looking at is not the best. And it comes out of maturity as well. As we mature, we're more able to understand certain things in different ways. So I want to challenge you. Look at your maps. Ask yourself, is, is, is this map the, the right one that I've got? What changes need to be made? And God will help you and your life will be richer as a result. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, ah, you're such a great and wonderful God and we love you so much. And you've given us the Bible as our map. But even that can cause consternation because we come to it in different ways, with different experiences and different interpretations. And that's why you've said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that the truth is only as it is in you. Help us, Lord, everyone in this room to be totally dedicated to you in a right relationship with you. And if we are, we have no fear, for you will lead us in making sure that the map that we have is correct and is taking us in the right direction. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.